What did he say? Oh, sorry. Take your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. So far, we have moved through the first chapter of Philippians at a, um, a pace that would make an old-time Presbyterian happy. Um, I don't think I've gotten down to do a whole sermon on one word yet, but uh, we've taken it in pretty small bites. Uh, I don't know that we'll do the whole book of Philippians this way. If so, um, I may get to retire before we finish Philippians, but uh, if not, we'll be good. But I especially wanted to work on this first real paragraph, verses 3 through 11. And um, so a few weeks ago, we looked at verses 3 through 6, which spoke of Paul's joyous thanksgiving for the Philippian church. And then verses 7 and 8, his affection for them, his love for them. And now in verses 9 through 11, we come to his prayer for them. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to read verse 3 through verse 11, even though we'll be looking tonight just at verses 9 through 11 that will be, I think, on the screen behind me as we walk through them together. But let's read verses 3 through 11. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart and you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and establishment of the gospel. For God is my witness how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment so that you can approve the things that are superior and can be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. About a year and a half ago, we did a sermon series on Sunday mornings on some of the prayers of Paul. And if I remember right, we did not include this one. I didn't go back and look it up. We may have. Um, but anytime we look at a prayer in the Bible, we have to ask ourselves how it impacts our prayer life. How do we tend to pray when we pray for ourselves, when we pray for others, when we pray for our church? I would venture to say that just like any other area of our lives, if we want to find the best model possible for how to do anything in our lives, we should look to Scripture. And so if we want to learn how to pray more effectively, the best way to do it is to look to great prayers of the Bible and see how did God give us examples of prayers. You see, we've got to remember this book, even though this was written by Paul, was actually inspired by the Holy Spirit. And it wasn't just inspired for the Philippians, it was inspired for us, so that when we read it, we can draw and learn about how to pray more effectively. And so as we look at how Paul prayed for the church at Philippi, I hope it will help us see more about how we can pray more effectively for ourselves, for one another, for our church, and for the work of Christ throughout God's kingdom around the world until Jesus comes. So what I want to do tonight is I want to look at, it's interesting, I, I outlined this thing three different ways in my studies as I was studying for, for, for tonight. And most of you probably know that when I do the evening sermons, they really come out of my own quiet time studies. It doesn't really come from 
formal preparation that I do during the week. I do a little bit of, of polishing and stuff, but really it comes out of notes that I have made maybe over, goodness knows, years um, as I will read through and make notes and things that have, and I try to keep them uh, based on books. And so I've got different outlines. I try to kind of pull them together so I can give you something that makes sense as we look at really a really small prayer that is like nitroglycerin. It is power packed with stuff. So I think the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to look at, of course, being a good preacher, three things that Paul talks about in this prayer. I want to talk about what Paul is asking God for, why he asks it for him, and how God will do this, okay? So that's the way we'll break it down. We could have done it any number of ways, but I want us to have a, a handle that will help you. So it's what, why, and how. Maybe that will kind of help you keep your, your mind focused around it. First of all, what is it that Paul is praying for for the Christians? You find that right at the beginning of verse 9. He says, I pray this, that your love will keep on growing. Now, there are two things in that. There are two parts of that. First of all, what kind of love is Paul talking about? Well, in the Greek, this is that word agape that we hear a lot, that we talk about a lot. We pretty well know on the surface what agape means. Agape is a love that is built around sacrificing for the sake of others, giving of ourselves to others. It's more than phileo, which is the love that is mutual, loving back and forth, what we do within the church. We have love for one another. But this kind of love, this agape love, is a love that pours itself out for others even if it doesn't receive anything back in return. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes that's a hard love to have. I, I don't mind doing nice things for folks. I, I guess the Lord was affirming what I just said. Now, if I lose it again, I'll just notch up the volume again, okay? I don't know about you, but, but I don't mind doing things for people. I don't mind doing things that are loving. I love doing things for people. But I've got to be honest with you and tell you, I do appreciate a thanks every now and then. I don't have to have one every time, but every now and then, just a word of, I really appreciate what you're doing. I really appreciate, you know, that, that, you know, whatever. And that's a weakness of our own flesh, let's just be honest, because the kind of love that Christ had for us was while we were his enemies, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so this love that Paul is praying for is a love that is the kind that will pour itself out. Now, now you notice there's no object to that verb. He doesn't say, I pray this that your love for God will keep on growing. He doesn't say, I pray for this that your love for each other. He just says, I just pray that your love will keep on growing. It needed to continue to, to build and uh, become stronger and stronger and stronger. That speaks to the fact that obviously they already had love because he says, I wanted to keep on growing. So there was love there, but it wasn't complete yet. It was still being worked out in their lives and in their life as a church. So he says, I, my prayer for you, the one thing I would love to hear from the Philippian church, my favorite church, which I think it really probably was, is that to hear that your love, your self-sacrificing, your sacrificial love is continuing to grow and grow and grow. So that's the nature of the love that Paul is praying for, is that it would be a love that is self-sacrificing and continuing to grow. But there's also an environment in which that love is built, and that's found in the next part of verse 9. He says, I pray that your love will keep on growing in two things, in knowledge and every kind of discernment. Now let's think about that just for a second. We live in a world where love and knowledge 
don't always go hand in hand. We tend to, in the secular world, in the movie world, in the romance novel world, think of love as being a very passionate emotion. It is very driven by the heart. It is not, actually, it's when you, when you stop thinking clearly and you fall in love and you go head over heels and you do wild, crazy things, you know, uh, pina coladas and getting caught in the rain and stuff like that. You know, that's what, that's what the world thinks of as love. But Paul says, no, the kind of love that I want you to have, the kind of love that I'm praying is a love that will be built on knowledge. Those of us that have been married for a number of years will understand what it means to, under, to, to, to realize the fact that we love our spouses more the more that we know about them. The more that we grow to know them, the more that we grow to love them. And so a knowledge without love is empty, but a love without knowledge also is empty. It takes both of them together. And Paul says, I want you to have the kind of love that is built on your knowledge. Now, just to say a word about this word knowledge, I've said this before to you, there are basically two words in the Greek language for knowledge. One is head learning. Knowledge is obtained by getting information that you don't already have from another source. The other kind of knowledge is the knowledge that you learn by experiencing it for yourself. You can read a Chilton manual all you want about how to change a set of brakes, but I guarantee you, you won't learn how to change a set of brakes until you sit down, get your jack out, jack the front of your car up, pull the wheel off and go, what do I do now? The Chilton manual will help you, but what you, will you learn by getting your hands in that grease and just doing it. That's how you learn. That is, that is gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, and the G is silent, okay? Gnosis, it is learning by experience. And here's what's so cool about that is that in essence, in Paul's writing, actually the experience, the act of experiencing it is part of the knowledge. In other words, it's kind of like the journey is part of the knowledge, not just the destination. In other words, you learn how to do it, but you also learn something from the process of working on it. You learn things about yourself. You learn whether you're patient or not. You learn whether you have good mechanical skills or not. You learn other kinds of things as you're going through the process. Paul says, this love that I want to see continuing to grow and abound in you is a love that is built on an experiential knowledge of what or whom? Of God, of course. But there's more than just knowledge about God. There's also the second part, which is not only knowledge, but also every kind of discernment. Now, that's an interesting word, interesting phrase. Discernment. Discernment is the ability to see the difference between what is right and what is not. To be able to discern means to be able to differentiate. And it is, a, it is actually an ethical word. It's a moral word. So Paul says not only do I want your love to be built on increasing knowledge and a depth of knowledge, but also on the ability to be able to make moral choices and be discerning about what you should do and what you shouldn't do as your love grows. So our love grows for one another. And we become more sensitive when we see in a brother or sister in Christ actions or attitudes or even little nuances that might hint toward a, a life that would not be honoring to God. And so because our love is growing for that person, we take up our courage and we go to them and we lovingly and humbly talk to them about what we see, something we might not would have ever seen before if our love had not been growing as a family, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so as we, as we, as we build this, this knowledge and as we grow in love, we're able to discern and 
determine what is going on in our own lives and in the lives of those around us. You say, well, now, Pastor, I don't know if it's the most loving thing in the world to go to somebody and tell them. Well, let me ask you this question. Let's say you've got a good friend who just happens to be an oncologist, and you go in for a routine exam, and your oncologist finds something that's wrong with you. And they go, you know, they have a real problem, but I don't want to hurt their feelings. I'll just tell them everything's great. So the doctor comes into your room and says, just big smile, says, I want you to know, perfect bill of health, you're doing wonderful. Does your friend really love you? No, no. Your fr- if your friend loves you, they're going to tell you, I see a problem and it's right here. Why would we do any different? Pregnant pause. Why would we do any different in the spiritual health of a brother or sister? Well, I'm not a doctor. You know what? We're all doctors because the Holy Spirit lives in us. And as we're growing in love for each other, as we're growing in love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, as we're growing in love for our sister churches, we speak in love and humility to help them understand and to grow. Paul says, this is the kind of love I want you to have. I want you to have a love that is abounding and that is growing in the environment of knowledge and discernment. Why? Why do they need that? He gives them three reasons why. Let's look at them in verse 10. So that, you see there? There's the why. I want you to have this kind of knowledge in order that, number one, you can approve the things that are superior. Hmm. You can approve the things that are superior. That's more than just knowing right from wrong. That's knowing the best from the better or the better from the good. He says, I want you, because of your love and your discernment and your knowledge, to be able to know what is the right thing to do. I want you to be able to make wise, discerning choices. I want you to be able to know and to approve the things that are superior. Now, just so you don't get thrown off on the word approve, sometimes in 21st century American English, we think of approving something as like, Looking over a paper, everything's fine, putting a stamp on it. Well, in a way, that's a pretty good example. Because to approve of an action means you've looked at it, you've assessed it, you've criticized it in your own heart and mind as you've looked it over and you say, yes, this is the right course of action. And that's the first thing Paul wants to come out of this love that is growing in them is they will be able to approve the things that are not just good, not just better, but that are superior. The second thing is to become righteous, to be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness. Paul says, I want your love to grow. I want it to continue to abound. I want it to be built around knowledge and every kind of discernment so that you not only can approve and know the things that are superior, but also to be pure and blameless. Some translations say until the day of Christ or against the day of Christ, The Holman says, in the day of Christ, with a little footnote. This is also, you could say, until. I just don't want the word until to throw you off, because it doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect before you get there. It means you're going to continue working on the process. My mom has a story she loves to tell about me. If Pat Young were here, I'd have to ask her if she told her this when when they visited with him in Georgia a few years ago. Mom has a story about when I was probably five or six years old, she was making my favorite cake. My favorite cake is a lemon pound cake. You know the kind that used to be in the Betty Crocker cookbook that you make in the bunt, bunt pan and you make that drizzle with the, with the lemon juice and the powdered sugar and you let it cook and then while it's still hot, you drizzle that on there and it soaks down into the cake. Mama would double the amount of that juicy stuff that she poured. So, I mean, it just seeped into the cake. The cake was almost dripping with it. Man, was it good. 
And so she would let me help her. And I'd stand up on the chair and by her at the counter, and she'd let me do things, and she'd let me help. And we'd get that cake ready, and, 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 and I said, what's it going to do now? She said, it's going to bake. I said, okay. And so she said, now step back because the oven's hot. And she opened up the oven, and she put the other thing in there, and she closed it up. And I said, okay, let's get it out now. It's ready. And she said, no, it's not ready yet. I said, but you said it had to bake. And she said, it does, but it's not done. It's baking. So she went to go do something else, and I decided, well, I think it's been there long enough. I think it's going to be fine. And so I opened up the oven door, and um, a few burned fingers later, I realized that, number one, you don't pull it back out without something. And number two, just because it is baking doesn't mean it's baked. You see, this is what sanctification is. This is sanctification. Just because we're not holy does not mean we're not growing in holiness. We are holying, okay? <laughs> we are being sanctified. We are being sanctified. We are not sanctified yet. We are not holy yet. This is a process. Now, you have to understand, I have a weird mind, okay? Some of you all know that, and you roll your eyes. Okay, that's fine. I know I have a strange mind. Sometimes a truth will come at me from just five degrees difference from where it always has, and it just strikes me as something really new and different. Like that thing about the implanted thing a few weeks ago in First John. The thing that struck me about this was this idea that, I don't know about you, but sometimes I wonder why we put so much emphasis on growing in holiness while we're still here. We're never going to get there, so why do we worry about it? Because, Paul says, we're getting ready for the day of Christ. And so we're, every day we're getting ready because today could be the day that he'll either call us home or he will return. And so he says, I want you, the reason I want you to have this love growing in you and, and the knowledge and the discernment and proving what's up here is so that you can be pure and blameless on the day of Christ or in the day of Christ or at the day of Christ. I want to make sure that you are as ready as you can be. So, beloved, if you ever fall into this trap and Satan begins to trick you into thinking, you know what, why are you even trying? You know you're not going to be perfect. You know you're not going to make it. So why even worry about it? We worry about it because we want to be as ready as we can be when Christ returns. And that's what Paul said. He said, the, the reason I want you to have this love is so we can discern, discern what's good and what's better and what's best. Number two, so that you can become righteous, having the fruit of righteousness. And thirdly, at the very end of verse 11, so that we can glorify and praise God. Some of us did not grow up in, we may not have been Armenians, we grew up in an Armenian-ish kind of environment, and we didn't grow up with the constant reminder that everything that happens in our lives happens because of the grace of God. Now let me just stop and sit down for a second. There is nothing, not one thing in this man that is worthy of salvation. Nothing. To this day, I'm 55 years old, 49 years after my first profession of faith in Christ, there is still nothing inherently in me. Everything I have that makes me worthy for salvation is all because of the grace of God. What God has done in me. And so it's like Tony Campolo, who I don't always agree with, but I love the line he used to make. He was talking about imputation. And he was talking about how we stand before God, you know, and God opens up the book and he sees all of these righteous things that have been written down. And God says, Tony, did you do all these things? And he says, hey, it's your book. 
You know, God is the one who imputes these things onto us. And so Paul says that when we are found to be righteous in him, when we are found to be discerning, when we are found to be able to know good and, and, and evil, when we are able to be filled with the knowledge of the experience of growing in Christ and overflowing with love, it will all be to God's glory. Because he's the one that has done this in us and for us and through us. Now, lest you think that that somehow means that we're just nothing but just worms crawling on the bottom of the ground. Listen, if we were left to our own devices, that is all that we would be. I tell you again, go back and reread your little Orphan Annie comic books. The original ones. Those are the ones, not the modern day version ones. Go back and read the original because it was written by Christian to emphasize what it means for us to be in Christ. He shared that in his own words. He said, I wrote this story so I could teach children what it meant to belong to Jesus Christ and be adopted as his children. There was nothing in Annie that made her draw the attention of Daddy Warbucks. He chose her. Now, whether you believe that means that we were elected from the foundation of the world, we'll talk about that another day. But it was Daddy Warbucks who decided he would take her in. But you know what? She didn't stay a dirty little girl. He cleaned her up. He gave her new clothes. He gave her a new room. He gave her new toys. He gave her everything she, she would need. He said, I will always be here for you. You don't ever have to worry ever, ever again. But she never said, oh, what a fine person I must be. She hugged her adopted father and said, thank you, thank you, thank you. So please understand, we are children of the King of kings and Lord of lords, but we still have to remind ourselves it's to his glory and not to ours. Last thing. How? The what? Of an abounding, growing love built in the environment of knowledge and discernment. Why? So that we know what is good and can make wise choices. Why? So that we can grow in righteousness and why? So that we can give God glory. That's the what, that's the why, now the how. How does God do it? Very simple. Look at the end of verse, or look, uh, middle of verse 11. It says, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. That's the how. How does God do it? He does it through Jesus Christ. And it is mitigated, no, not mitigated, that's the wrong word. It is then distributed to us through Christ as we put our trust in him to the glory and praise of God. You see, Christ has made us righteous when we surrender our lives to him. When we exchange, our, your parents might, well, some of our grandparents, some of you was your parents' generation, talked about the exchanged life. God exchanged the righteousness of Christ for our unrighteousness, made him unrighteousness on our behalf, made us righteous through his righteousness. So we are declared righteous. We are declared holy. And then out of that, the fruit comes. The byproduct of that comes. And it's done through Jesus Christ. I pray for a lot of things. I still believe seven years later, almost seven years later, the thing I told you the Sunday that I preached in view of a call to be your pastor, that I believe that by far the most important 
thing that any pastor should do for his congregation is pray, 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 pray. You should lock me in my study and make me pray. You should not let me go do other things. You should say, Pastor, if you've not spent at least two hours today in prayer for your church, you have no business doing anything else until you spent that kind of time in prayer. That's why, no disrespect to anybody else that does it, they're just better men than me, I guess. I don't go to all these IBSA meetings. Nothing wrong with them. I just don't have time for them. Now, if I could find me a nice little driver like Jim Donahue used to have, I could pray while he was driving, while my driver was driving. That would be cool because Jim had a buddy that he would always take with him, and the poor guy didn't realize the sap that he was being used as a chauffeur. But anyway, sorry, that's another story for another day. But, but seriously, I pray for a lot of things. But to be honest with you, I don't always pray like this, and I need to learn how to pray this way better, and I'm going to work on it. And I want to challenge you to work on it as well. The next time you go before the little throne, Tonight before you go to bed, tomorrow in your quiet time, when you pull out your prayer list, yes, you should pray for Diane Holly's health. Yes, we should pray for this baby who they're not sure what's wrong with it and trying to figure out why it stopped breathing. Yes, we should pray for, of course, Jim Taylor and others. We should pray. But as we're praying for them, why would we not take the time saying, Lord, while I'm praying for Jim, I just pray that you would help his love just to grow and to flourish that he would grow in his knowledge of you, that he would grow in wisdom and discernment. I pray that he would be able to have the fruit of righteousness in his life and to continue growing more and more pure and blameless in his life. And by the way, Lord, I need those things too in my life. It'd be amazing how your prayer life will change when you begin to pray the way Paul prayed for the church at Philippi. There's a lot of things we can pray for. But Paul prayed for abounding love. He prayed for knowledge and insight. He prayed for assessing what is best. And he prayed for the coming day of Christ so that they would be ready when Jesus returned. Go and do likewise. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for giving us this example from the life of Paul. Paul. 